Good morning, church. As Andrew said, would you uh, grab grab your copy of God's Word this morning and open it to Proverbs chapter 11? So what we're going to be looking at, we're going to study, we're going to continue studying wisdom as we are enrolled in classes in Wisdom University. And this morning we are going to look at the theme proverb talks about, which is pride and humility, and being one of the most highly qualified people to talk about it this morning. Uh, no, let's uh, let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. Proverbs 11. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. This concludes the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we confess to being proud and enjoying it all too much. Would you help us this morning? Would you stir our affections? Would you change our countenance? Would you operate on our hearts? Would you kill our flesh that still loves and desires sin? This in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit, we pray. Amen. There is an old marketplace scheme that's called the bait and switch. It is the trick of presenting one thing to the buyer, but after the sale, giving them something less than promised and presented. Well, in 2015, the well-known car manufacturer Volkswagen was caught in an environmental bait-and-switch that cost them $14 billion in stock value in just one single day. What they did was they used a software hack that registered when the vehicle was being environmentally tested for emissions that the software would kick in and produce less emissions as it was tested. This trick gave them the ability to tout that their small diesel vehicles were powerful, efficient, but also had less emissions and less environmental impact when they were driven. However, this was later discovered and cost them billions because that same software changed the performance and emissions of the vehicle when it detected it was being driven on the road. VW sold the customer one thing when in reality they knew something entirely different was at play. And this is how Solomon describes and wants us to see pride in Proverbs. He does this by unveiling the true substance you get when you climb pride's pedestal and buy into its scheme. This is because pride is in the bait and switch business. When pride tempts us, it is tempting because it's promising and trying to sell us greatness. Pride promises us power and respect Pride wants you to buy in on your own prestige and privileges. Pride even wants us to believe it will reward us with wisdom and honor. And thus it's even more crafty, alluring deceit. But in the midst of those false promises, 
Like a good coach seeing his players about to fall for the enemy's trap, Solomon calls a timeout, huddles up his team, and tells him, Hey, 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 hey. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. It is humility that brings honor and wisdom. Those things pride holds out are momentary and fleeting. And at best, or at worst, just a sheer vapor. Yet, he goes on to say, with the humble is wisdom. And that is what we'll explore this morning as we continue to look and unpack Proverbs 11.2 and examine pride and its opposite, humility. Solomon calls God's children and warns them to deny the seduction of pride and humble themselves under God's wisdom and ways. Let me say that one more time. The believer is called and warned to deny the seduction of pride and humble themselves under God's wisdom and ways. If we are going to discuss this perilous virus, we probably want some kind of working definition to get us all on the same page. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke said this. He said, pride denotes a psychological state of an exaggerated opinion of oneself that does not correspond to social reality. He goes on further to say that it is combined with a foregoing of authority and divine prerogative that rightfully belongs to the Lord, connoting defiance and rebellion to his rule. It is a mindset that is convinced one is always better than thou and deserving of things as an exclusive right. And it deserves all the acclamation without infringement or checks and balances. In other words, pride is the unholy matrimony of arrogance and entitlement. It is a complete self-exaltation that is devoid of reality. That being said, we all have some intuitive sense of what pride is, don't we? Especially when we see it in others. I, I enjoyed a USA Today article this week listing some quotes by a former professional athlete. And I want to share some of them with you, but before I give it away who it is, I want, to, I want you to see if you can guess who it is as I give a few of his fantastic quotes. I hope it's just as humoring to you as it was to me. Quote, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. Quote, I am the greatest. I said that even before I knew I was. Quote, I am the astronaut of boxing. Joe Lewis and Dempsey were just jet pilots. I'm in a world of my own. Quote, I've wrestled with alligators, I've tussled with a whale, I've done handcuffed lightning and throw thunder in jail. Quote, and I hope I don't get struck by lightning as I say this one, I'm the most recognized and loved man that ever lived because there weren't no satellites when Jesus and Moses were around. So people far away in the villages didn't know about him. Oof. Quote, 
I'm not the greatest. I'm the double greatest. Because he famously also said he floats like a butterfly and he stings like a bee. Yeah, there we go. Upon hearing statements like this, we can easily say, oh, yeah, yep, that's pride. There it is. Yep. No one's probably going to object to that conclusion either. But one of the big problems with pride is how easy it is to spot in others and how well it has seduced itself and blinded us to its reality in our own lives. So before we go any further disbelieving someone could be that proud, we would do well to remember that this pride dwells in our hearts as well. Though hopefully none of you say that out loud with vibrato. Am I right? If you would allow me for a second, I'd like to play devil's advocate and ask, but is it really that bad? I mean, on one level, it really seems to work out in some cases, doesn't it? That gusto might have been the thing that made Muhammad Ali arguably one of the greatest fighters in boxing history. But this is precisely what Solomon wants to unveil for us. This is what pride sells. There is a switch here. Ultimately, pride comes along with not success or happiness, not meaning and purpose, not honor or dignity. Its ultimate end is disgrace and ruin. As he says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. Solomon doesn't tell us how or when it will occur. He leaves that to God's providence. But nevertheless, he assures us it is a guarantee. It is a fixed reality with pride. Some may have a longer run before the fall, but all are guaranteed to fall. For many centuries, for many Christians throughout the centuries, rather, pride has been the Mecca of all sins. It is the sin-producing sin. It lurks everywhere, and it poisons everything. It is the root from which every sinful fruit grows. C.S. Lewis said it this way. Here's a plug for coming to mere Christianity tonight. Now we have come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind, end quote. And unfortunately for us, we loved that anti-God state of mind. Do you remember when it was first sold to us? This was how pride was first packaged. You won't die. In fact, you will be like God. And Adam and Eve perfectly represented the entire human race when they said, 
Sounds good. How much? Then they grabbed the fruit and they bought into pride's lie. But sure enough, pride, as Solomon described it, is always married to disgrace and ruin. The result was not power and godlike status. They were swiftly kicked out of the garden, cut off from the tree of life, and distanced from God himself. Pride always cuts the limb from which we were standing. It cuts against, against the grain of how God created us to operate. Because pride ultimately rejects any dependence, especially upon God, and believes in the myth of self-existent autonomy. Pride actually can only guarantee failure, humiliation, and disgrace because pride has a fixed, built-in consequence with it. God created the world this way, and that's what Solomon is trying to warn us here. One of the Old Testament scenes that I think most notably exemplifies this is when David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, I'm going to lean into this story a little bit, but I, I don't think it's more than the implications bear. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, clues us into the first danger when it says, During the time when kings go out to battle, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, obviously, kings can't go fight every battle, but the paragraph just prior, he was. And with the enemy they were fighting when he wasn't at battle, They were actually engaged in battle because David had a hand in creating it. So was he all of a sudden too good for battle? Was he better than a soldier and his mighty men? Then, after asking about the woman, her name and her marital status are given. But isn't this David? Isn't this David the king that just danced before the Ark of the Covenant that contained the Ten Commandments, which, from my recollection, I think number seven said something about not sleeping with another man's wife. Ah, but he's the king, right? He Doesn't he get certain privileges and immunity from the law every once in a while? Finally, when she is found pregnant, and it might go public, He allures the faithful soldier back to sleep with his wife and cover up his sin. Why? Because, of course, the king, the king, the king could not be found out. Pride. Pride allured David away from his men into adultery, further into murder, and then landed him in a heap of of disgrace. Ironically, his son of that woman of late said, disgrace is the guarantee of man's pride. Now, you might be sitting there questioning, but hey, there's there's one example, there's maybe two examples. I'll grant you that. But it sure seems like prideful people don't get the disgrace they deserve. I could count a number of examples of the disgrace I'm still waiting on for prideful people. (laughs) Okay. 
Well, if we broaden our view out of 11.2 and allow other Proverbs and the rest of the Bible to inform pride's disgrace, we come away with a picture that is much more severe than just public humiliation. Pride's disgrace has eternal ramifications. It brings one under divine punishment. Listen to Proverbs 16.5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. The word behind punished there is the same word for how God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34. You remember what he said there? This is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But here's this, and here's our word matching the idea and word from Proverbs 16. But who will know who will by no means clear the guilty? Pride's contest brings us toe-to-toe with God. It is a challenge of God's righteous character. And pride's punishment is guaranteed on God's own character and nature. So how do we escape from pride's snare then? If we turn our attention to the second half of the proverb, Solomon tells us and points us actually to a further stall down the market, a a stall that rarely sees any customers. It doesn't have catchy gimmicks, fancy advertising and smooth sales tactics, but Solomon wants to give us insider information that unlike the seller pride, humility always gives what she promises. If you don't want to get caught in disgrace from that prideful bait and switch, Solomon urges us to shop at humility's store. Though tough, humility is a very liberating and satisfying Christian virtue, isn't it, beloved? You've tasted it in the cross. I heard the late NIV translator and Old Testament scholar Ronald Youngblood say with tears in his eyes, humility is the cardinal virtue of Christianity, yet the most difficult to implement. Humility, I think, can often be misunderstood for being walked all over like a doormat as some sort of evangelical asceticism of sorts. How I would, however, I would argue that that's not really humility. That probably resembles something more like well-intended false pride. Humility, contrary to pride, is best understood as having a right view of yourself in light of God's authority ways and design it is dependence and submission to his sovereignty creation and providence not your own it is not simply thinking less of yourself 
It is thinking of yourself properly in light of who God is and who you are in relation to this eternal, eternally righteous, almighty, and benevolent God. What often happens as a result of that humility is thinking of yourself less because you are thinking about the king of glory, his creation, his decrees, his ways, more than you are thinking of yourself, your desires, and your wants. To reinforce this idea, Solomon says that with the humble is wisdom. And for the last few months, we've been learning about godly wisdom. And I just want to bring us through a quick review of this wisdom. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10 doubles down on this idea and says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord is then explained in two ways. In chapter 8.10 says it this way, The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech God hates. Or in 1533, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. You see, Solomon is painting this picture of the beginning of wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord. And this is what Andrew spoke about last week as he talked about it in contrast to the fear of man. Fear of the Lord is a disdain and a scorn for wickedness. Fear of the Lord is a disgust and hatred for the things God hates. Not only that, it is a constant diet of his instructions. It's adherence to his ordinances and authority instead of pride's defiance to it. I think this is what we read in Psalm 19.9 when he says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. One of the New Testament scenes that I think exemplifies this humility so well is Jesus' baptism and subsequent temptation. The baptism is this inaugural moment in Jesus' ministry where the Spirit comes down and anoints the Lord, and then the Father gives this public pronouncement of the Son's messianic identity where he said, This is my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Well, then what happens next? The Spirit leads the Son into the wilderness, and the devil's line of questioning after that revolved around one idea. If you are the Son of God. In other words, was Jesus going to believe the pronouncement from his baptism? Would Jesus submit to the Father's word and believe it? Absolutely he did. Because Jesus was perfectly humble. Never 
Never did he stray just a nanometer from his identity and mission as the true son of God unto his last moments when he said, not my will, but yours be done. And the very next scene out of Luke 4 in the gospel, Jesus emboldens himself and reads this out of Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He submitted in every way to the Father and his word because he was humble and with him was wisdom. He accepted his role in redemption and never wavered from it in any degree. And in so doing, Christ redeemed us from our pride. He purchased our redemption out of our sinful rebellion and disgrace. So I want to ask us this morning, how are we doing submitting to God's instruction? How is it going for us on our way to being conformed to the image of the Son? And what I want to do with the time I have left is hopefully encourage and motivate us towards humility. Not from a pedestal as if I am better and have it all figured out, but because God's ways are truly the best for us, they will provide, his words will provide flourishment and fulfillment. So because humility is tied to obedience and submission to God's ways and not our own, I want to look directly at scripture for our instruction and guide for humility. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, Are you taking your job seriously to rear your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? Are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? Are you making this a priority over your job, your hobbies, and your recreation? If not, start tonight. Round up your family. Own the past. And move forward in humility. Pride will keep you from obedience as it makes you believe there is something more worth your time than that. Children, youth, Ephesians 6, 1 says, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Are there rules beginning to be patronizing, maybe a little annoying for you? I can say they never were as a child, you know. Are you finding yourself defiant and obeying in word and not deed? Are your choices and your priorities to their shame? Will you make it difficult for your father to teach you tonight? Or will you honor his authority? Wives, sorry you don't get a free pass this morning. 
Ephesians 5, 22 and 33 speak of submitting to and respecting your husbands. Is our culture's relentless pursuit of calling this command chauvinistic and archaic, influencing your attitude towards your husband? Are you pursuing your job to be his helpmate and encourage his steps in godliness? Do your kids sense that you are united or you are united with and one with your husband? Or do they suspect that there is a subtly brewing coup afoot? No matter what stage of life we find ourselves in, I think we need to ask ourselves and comply with the clear teaching of Scripture. And lest I make it like there are only clear commands for married people and kids, let me propose two more examples from Scripture that I think apply to everyone. In this election year, just got real quiet. (laughs) Are we going to uphold 1 Peter 2.17 and honor the emperor, or does our speech slander whoever will take office. That doesn't mean we can't disagree, but it means we must do it honorably. Or, for us together, Sand Harbor, Colossians 3, 12, and 13 says this, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Beloved, the proud cannot forgive. But we can, because he has forgiven our sins. What I am hoping to tease out here is that wherever there is a clear biblical imperative for us in our role pride will scoff but humility will discern where we fall short of it and how we need to submit to it beloved but we are not left to ourselves as though we need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and earn our salvation no no we have been given the holy spirit to empower and enable us in godliness. We aren't going to be perfect. No, it's not the goal. But honest and sober reflection causes us to plead to God for mercy and help in our shortcomings. And look around for a moment. This community is rich in resources. We are meant to help one another Again, not to be sin police over one another, but to encourage and motivate one another to walk in the Lord. I don't want to squelch any conviction, but I also don't want to heap burdens upon us. These are for our good. God's ways are beneficial and life-giving. So I want to leave us with the encouragement I think Solomon is pointing us towards as we submit to God's ways. Listen to what he said in Proverbs 3, 33 to 35. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, 
but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. God's blessing, favor, and honor are promised to you as you seek to humble yourself before him and submit to his ways. This is not only for this life, though, but these will be bestowed on you eternally as you humble yourself under the lordship of his son. And that is our great hope. Let's pray.